Hey there, classic rock campers. Hope you've got your novelty New Jersey license plate air fresheners ready, because today on Discord and Rhyme, we're going to be speeding down the turnpike and blasting Bon Jovi slippery when... Oh no! It's Prog John! Welcome back, my friends, to the show that never ends. We're so glad you could attend. This is Discord and Rhyme. Welcome to Discord and Rhyme, a podcast where we discuss our favorite albums song by song. I'm Amanda Rogers, and I'm here today with Dan Watkins, John McFerrin, and Mike DeFabio. All right, we're going in a little bit different direction today. This is our first prog rock album, um, and we've got John McFerrin hosting it for us. John, what are you leading us through today? Today, we will be discussing Emerson, Lake, and Palmer's self-titled debut from 1970. That sounds fabulous. Yay. Why are we talking about Emerson, Lake, and Palmer in the year 2018? Why are we talking about it? So I need to start off with an initial disclaimer. So my Twitter handle is Tarkus1980. Now, Tarkus1980 is, has the word Tarkus in it, and that references a 20-minute Emerson, Lake, and Palmer track called Tarkus about an armadillo tank that roams the countryside and wreaks havoc and my Twitter avatar is the cover of the album of the same name with said armadillo tank. If you are still here after that, thank you and bless you. I hope you enjoy the rest of this podcast. Now, based on the fact that I have this in my Twitter handle, you might assume that I'm a hardcore fan of the band, that they are one of my very, very favorites. But that's not entirely true. Emerson, Lake and Palmer is by no means a band that I objectively love. I like them, but they're somewhere around my 40th or 50th favorite band. But what this means is that in comparison to the general public, I absolutely adore them because people by and large do not like this band. Now, this was not always the case. Uh, for a period in the first half of the 1970s, this band was massively popular. They were never 
critically liked, but they were massively popular. They could attract very large audiences in live performances, um, often reaching into the hundreds of thousands. And then something happened. And that something was late 70s British punk. This was a genre that formed largely for the specific purpose of mocking and discrediting Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. One of the famous stories to emerge uh, from late 70s British punk was that at Sex Pistols concerts, uh, they would burn Keith Emerson in effigy. And this just became a, a shtick of their shows. Now, this kind of reaction to, to prog rock and to Emerson, Lake, and Palmer in particular strikes me as excessive. And in the year 2018, I feel that it's far, far more pretentious to hate Emerson, Lake, and Palmer than it is to kind of like them. There's just too much interesting and eccentric stuff happening on their first handful of albums, and in particular on their debut, to justify such a complete dismissal by most people who come across this band. Now, eventually, yes, the band was somewhat swallowed up by its pretensions, and they made some mistakes that they probably shouldn't have, like uh, lugging around an orchestra on tour with them and coming close to bankrupting themselves. But their first handful of albums are primarily about eccentric eclecticism. And I'm somebody who loves eccentric eclecticism. And if you're someone who's attracted to this, then you may find that you enjoy this band much more than you might have expected. And my hope today is that with my co-host, that we can make a case both for the band's debut album and for Emerson, Lake and Palmer in general. Now I've chosen the band's debut album largely because it did not jump out at me right away. But also because, while it did not jump out at me right away, I eventually came to view it as their best and as one of the best debut albums I've ever heard. I also chose it because I think that of all their albums, it is the one that's least likely to turn off somebody who's just trying to get into the band. And a large reason for this is that the keyboards on this album are much more conventional than the sorts of keyboards that would typically be used later. The, the keyboards on this album are piano, Hammond organ, pipe organ, clavinet, and Moog, Moog synthesizers. And these are all staples of 70s rock music or of genres adjacent to 70s rock music like jazz fusion. So someone who goes and saying, oh, I don't like synthesizers, won't even necessarily really be turned off by this album like perhaps they might by some of their other albums. So, John, how did you first find out about these guys? What is the story of Emerson, Lake, Palmer, and McFerrin? The story of Emerson, Lake, Palmer, and McFerrin goes back uh, to the summer of 1998, right after I had finished high school. So in my junior and senior year, years of high school, I had found that I was starting to get into art rock and prog rock. Uh, my introductions to this area of rock music were the Moody Blues and Pink Floyd. And since I liked them so much, I thought that maybe art rock might turn out to be something that I would enjoy in general. And one thing that helped was that I did not yet know that the consensus would have said that I wasn't supposed to like these genres. So one avenue I decided to pursue was Emerson, Lake & Palmer. My first purchase of this band was Brain Salad Surgery. Now, my overall impression of this album then and now was positive. Now, I initially thought that some of the album sounded pretty ridiculous, even accounting for the band's overall style. And I still think that. But I also think that the best parts of the album, in particular Takata 
and Carnival Night Part 1 are strong enough to justify the album's overall reputation. Now, my second purchase was Tarkus, and I initially considered this album completely baffling, but eventually I found that I absolutely loved the title track, and I liked most of the second side. My third purchase was this album, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, and while I liked it right away, it was more in a respectful way than in an enjoyment way. My The way that I liked this album was in more of a cold way, the way I might have treated a jazz album. Now, part of the problem was, at the time, I was not at all into jazz. And what I also found was that the... Uh, the keyboards and the production weren't garish. There wasn't enough vocals. And it was hard for this album to keep my attention. Now, eventually I came to love jazz. And eventually I, I found my way towards enjoying the sort of music uh, that, this, that this album presents, both on, from, the, from their classical influences and their jazz influences. And what I found over time was that I wanted to listen to this album more than any other, of their other albums. And over time, I concluded that this album was their best. And I also found that many of the attributes that turned me off to the album initially were actually among their greatest strengths. Four of the, of the tracks on this album, so there's six tracks on this album, four of them are among my very favorites from the band. And the other two are fine. Now, the story of Emerson, Lake Palmer, and Rogers goes back to when I was very little. Uh, it starts with my mom's legendary vinyl collection, uh, which I've talked about a lot on my Twitter feed and which was extremely formative in shaping my musical tastes, you know, to this day. And she had this album and brain salad surgery. You know, one of my earliest memories is of sitting on the floor in front of the stereo and playing with that really cool gatefold cover on brain salad surgery. Now, this was before I found out that both the cover and the title of that album are secretly really gross. <laughs> but I still like both of them. <laughs> now, when I was a kid, I liked brain salad surgery better because it's it's bigger, it's more showy, it has, you know, more that's going to catch your attention. But now that I'm older and, you know, somewhat more mature, I prefer the debut album. It's I find it a lot more consistent and it's more accessible. You know, as John said, it's comparatively straightforward and conventional, you know, as compared to other prog rock albums of the era. And the whole thing is just cleaner and a lot less cluttered. I hadn't listened to this one for a long time before John suggested that we do it for the podcast. And I'm really glad he did. It was great to come back to it after so long. And also, I noticed just like last week that there's an ear on the cover right next to that pretty bird. Never, ever saw that before in my whole entire life. So, you know... That was a really fun discovery. Thanks, John. My pleasure. <laughs> and now the story of Emerson, Lake, Palmer, and Watkins. Well, uh, like you, Amanda, I came to ELP through my parents' record collection. And in my case, my dad had sat me down when I was about nine years old and had played me, I think it was brain salad surgery. And, uh, you know, when I was nine years old, it, it just sounded big and heavy and mean and exciting. Um so it, it clicked with me and he didn't actually own this album. He had, I think like Tarkus, Brain Cell Surgery and the one that I really took to, which was Pictures at an Exhibition, the much maligned and infamous Pictures at an Exhibition. Everyone else is wrong. They are. I agree. But I, I, I bought this in my teens and listened to it a couple of times, not very closely, just kind of put it on and it didn't grab me. So I sold it. 
And it really wasn't until last month when I was preparing for this episode that I bought a new copy and listened to it. And um, yeah, I actually agree with everybody else. Like it's really probably one of the more approachable ELP albums and maybe the, the least dated even. Yes, um, very much. Mm-hmm. So, But, uh, but I'm, I'm glad you guys kind of kind of wrote me into giving another evaluation. All right. Now, how, how about Emerson, Lake Palmer and DeFabio? How does that story go? Uh, Emerson, Lake Palmer and DeFabio go way back. Uh, <laughs> I was my, my story is very much like the rest of yours. I was probably about 14 years old. I was deep into Pink Floyd and I was busy gobbling up everything I could find by them. I had just discovered uh, Peter Gabriel era Genesis, particularly the album Foxtrot, which split my mind wide open. And I think I had either just bought or would buy soon uh, the S album, Fragile. And I thought that was really great, too. And my dad noticed the sort of stuff I was listening to, and he said, have you ever heard Emerson, Lake, and Palmer? And I hadn't. And he said, I used to own an album called Brain Solid Surgery. And he didn't anymore. Wasn't one of the ones I could dig out of my parents' record collection. But the great thing about Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, at least... You know, in the late 90s, maybe this isn't as true now. But uh, what was definitely true then was that you could find their albums pretty easily at the Goodwill store. Yep. So it wasn't long mm. before I came home from school with a used copy of Brain Salad Surgery that I found for about a dollar. I put it on, and it immediately just sucked me right into its world. I'm probably one of, I don't know, 10 people in the world that didn't want Carnival 9 to be over when it ended. <laughs> uh, and after that album was over, I was convinced that Emerson, Lake, and Palmer were three of the coolest mofos on the planet. Uh, <laughs> they, they ended up being the first real rock concert I ever went to, and I, I had no idea that this kind of music was so deeply uncool. And I, yep. I didn't understand why they were so maligned when I found that out. Uh, their music was so interesting, and it had so many cool things going on in it. And I really liked, uh, what I liked about Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, one of the things I really liked was how how huge they could sound without any lead guitar. Yeah. I mean, they would, they would have some lead guitar sometimes, but it was all just a big wall of keyboards, and I loved that. All right, so what is the story of Emerson, Lake, and Palmer just on their own without us guys? Welcome back, my friends, to the show that never ends. We're so glad you could attend. Come inside, come inside. There behind the glass stands a real blade of grass. Be careful as you pass. Move along, move along. Come inside, the show's about to start. Guaranteed to blow your head apart. Rest assured, you'll get your money's worth. With this show, it happened out at the Oxy Show. It's a dynamo. You gotta see the show. It's rock and roll. All right, so Emerson, Lake, and Palmer is really the first prog rock supergroup. And it consists of the former members of three late 60s prog rock bands. So we'll go through them one at a time. The first is Keith Emerson. He's the keyboardist. So he was a veteran of a band called The Nice. It's a band with one album that I liked a lot called The Thoughts of Emerless Dave Jack uh, from 1967. And... A handful of good songs, both uh, originals and covers. But overall, The Nice is a band that I consider more important than good. Now, one of the, the favored musical approaches of The Nice 
one of their shticks involves taking existing pieces from other genres, typically outside of rock, and adapting these pieces to their own style. And their style was typically noisy, keyboard-heavy, and much more in line with late 60s hard rock and psychedelia than with 70s prog rock as it came to be known, which makes sense because 70s prog rock didn't exist yet. Their covers of classical pieces were very clumsy. Uh, their typical approach was to alternate a proper presentation of a track, so very dignified, very straight, with a rocked-up version, and then at the end they would attempt to blend the two approaches. And their covers of non-classical works are much better. And my two favorites uh, from them are, first, a, a cover that they call Rondo, which is a cover of Dave Brubeck's Blue Rondo a la Turk, where the main gimmick is that they take the, the original, which is in 9-8, and they just smash it into 4-4, and it ends up essentially sounding like a prototype for Deep Purple live jams from a few years later. Like, you can directly map Rondo into, say, the live version of Space Trucker. for them that I really like is a cover of America from the Leonard Bernstein musical West Side Story. side of things. Next, we have Greg Lake. So he was vocals and guitar and bass. So he's a veteran of King Crimson, or what would go down as the first incarnation of King Crimson. In the Court of the Crimson King uh, was released in 1969. It was a major commercial and critical smash. And it has gone down in history as one of the most important and influential albums in the history of prog rock. Now, in late 1969, uh, one of their key members named Ian McDonald, he was their keyboardist, woodwind player, and primary songwriter, he decided to leave King Crimson. 
and the initial lineup of King Crimson ultimately disintegrated. Now, after staying on to record some vocals for King Crimson's second album called In the Wake of Poseidon, Lake decided that he was going to leave King Crimson as well. So Greg Lake and Keith Everson had met when the Nice had been opening for King Crimson on the West Coast, and ultimately they decided that they wanted to form a band together. Now, the third, Carl Palmer, he's the drummer. So prior to joining Emerson, Michael Palmer, Carl Palmer had been the drummer for a band called Atomic Rooster. achieved some long-term success after Palmer exited, but for the most part today, Atomic Rooster is known as the answer to the trivia question, what band did Carl Palmer play in before he joined Emerson Lake and Palmer? <laughs> All right. So now that we know where these guys came from and what kind of went into building this genre of music, let's get into it. Let's play The Barbarian. This is where we're going to start to get really nerdy, and it's going to pretty much stay here for the rest of the episode. So, The Barbarian is an adaptation of Allegro Barbaro, which is a two-and-a-half-minute piano work written by the Hungarian composer Bela Bartok way back in 1911. Now, from the band's perspective, this is a massive, massive improvement over similar efforts that Emerson had done with the Nice. And... I like it for, for two main reasons. One is that it immediately puts on display the strengths of the new ensemble. And the second is that it shows that the band's general artistic ideology was fundamentally aligned with one of my favorite composers, who is Bella Bartok. He's one of my favorite composers of either the 20th century or any century. And this is not a consensus opinion. I, if I recall correctly, Amanda, you said that your, your husband kind of grimaced 
when I said I was going to talk, be talking about Bartok in this episode. He did more than grimace. He he did that, you know, finger down his throat gagging thing. <laughs> He's a big classical music fan, but very conventional, and he hates Bartok. Yeah, that's that's a common that's a common reaction. Now, the thing about Bartok is that his primary interest as a composer was synthesis. Now, he had a strong familiarity and respect for everything that had come before him. He understood proper formal conventions. He understood proper harmonic conventions. But he also had a very strong interest in taking musical influences from other cultures that didn't typically produce major composers, and he wanted to graft those influences into his own music. So Allegro Barbaro is a piece that includes heavy elements of both Hungarian and Romanian folk music. And this extends both to the pitch collections used and the types of rhythmic irregularities uh, that, the, that the piece contains. Now, in terms of, of Emerson Lincoln Palmer's cover of this, what immediately jumps out at me is how much it differs in its overall approach than what the nice would do. So if this had been done by the nice, it would have started with a faithful rendition of the original piano work. And then the rock part would have only come in after about a minute. And then at the end, they would have made a half-hearted attempt to combine the two. Here, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer establishes that this is their piece from the start. The first minute is, yeah, it's based off the original melody and the original harmonies, but it's done slow. And it's done menacing. And there's a strong emphasis on a very heavy bottom um, a very, very angry-sounding Hammond organ. And eventually they move into the more straight version of the piece, which is Emerson on piano and Palmer on the drums. But again, this is only after the band has firmly established its own style, its own imprint on the track. By the time you get to the end, the sound of the hammer is just being overcome by Palmer's drums, which are basically beating the listener to death. just so so impressed with the balance between what they were able to do with the old the the original Bartok piece here and the the new developments that they were able to add now another thing i find interesting about the link between emerson michael palmer and Bartok is that i feel like there's a pretty strong analogy to be made between 
ELP and bar talk in general. And here's what I would say. For a while after Bartok died in 1945, he was considered more or less a dead end. He was someone who had adopted some aspects of modernity, but people who came after him felt that too much of his style was rooted in the past and it wasn't relevant anymore. And similarly, prog rock crashed into punk rock and it crashed into other things in the late 70s. And many people were eager to say, oh, prog rock is now permanently irrelevant. We don't have to think about it anymore. But what ended up happening with Bartok is that the composers that were supposed to supplant him, that were supposed to make him irrelevant, it turned out that nobody wanted to listen to their music. As those composers, their reputation started to fall, his reputation went up and up. And what ended up happening was his synthesis-centric approach to composition became the, the primary model for later composers. And similarly, with prog rock, yes, later pop music wouldn't go out of the way to write music exactly like 70s prog rock, but elements of 70s prog rock are everywhere now. They've made their way everywhere from mainstream artists like Radiohead to video game soundtracks. You just, you, you can't get away from prog rock. Yeah, that's true. It's been very influential after all, even after so many people tried to stomp it out. Now, I'm not, I'm not prepared to comment on the Bartok stuff. Um, I knew of him before and I knew he was a more avant-garde composer, but I didn't, I'm not sure how much of his work I'd actually heard. Uh, so I just listened to uh, this piece yesterday, I think, so I could compare them. And I like it a lot. Um, and I think, John, you made some really good points about how, you know, in the middle, it's a fairly straight cover. Um, but it's also recognizably an Emerson, Lake and Palmer track. They really put their own stamp on it in a big way right out of the gate with that nice fuzzy guitar that it starts with. It's just enough to throw you off the track and make you think it's going to be a rock song. And then the keyboards start in and you're like, okay, no, this is new. And then, you know, around a minute and a half in where they really channel the, the Bartok original and they put that skittering drum part into it that makes it feel more jazzy. I really like that a lot. And I had to, you know, confirm with you, and I was kind of proud of myself when you <laughs> confirmed this for me, uh, that Bartok and George Gershwin were influential on each other. Uh, because this whole piano piece reminds me a lot of... Uh, particularly the piano solo from Rhapsody in Blue. I mean, they don't yep. sound, they're not that similar, like from a, melodic stand, from a melodic standpoint, but just they have the same feel, the same kind of rhythms, the same just vibe overall. And so I thought that was really interesting and was pleased that I picked up on that because that's something that I rarely do. <laughs> right, what's, what's interesting with the influence between Bartok and Gershwin is um, Gershwin was influenced by Bartok, then Gershwin uh, died early unexpectedly. Bartok was ultimately influenced. So, sorry, Gershwin was influenced by Bartok. Bartok was influenced by Gershwin, but mostly both of them were influenced by Debussy and Ravel. Mm. Uh, there's there's a lot of French music influence that makes their way both into this piece and into Gershwin. Um, so uh, and, and that speaks again more generally to the idea that this sort of music is more familiar to to people's everyday uh, music listening experience that people might necessarily mm -hmm. think. You don't necessarily uh, know that these are the, this is where these influences are coming from, but they're there and they're, and they're subconsciously, you, you just absorb them. It's like, oh yeah, this doesn't sound as foreign as I might necessarily think given the name. Right, and that's part of what makes, you know, this album in particular more accessible than some other prog rock albums, because that it's familiar. Even if people don't know this particular piece, you know, you've heard things that sound like this before. 
Yeah. Um, so, and I think this track is really well constructed and if from beginning to end, it's interesting and engaging, which is not always the case for prog rock instrumentals. And this is a great introduction to that genre. Yeah. I probably couldn't be less qualified to talk about classical music. So really my main observation with this is just how much it really defines the ELP sound just right out of the gate on the debut album with the big fuzzy heavy bass and the kind of angry Hammond organ. Um, and I, I agree that the structure of the piece is really effective, and I really like the middle section. And I guess I'm, I don't really have a good sense of how conventional it is, just since I don't really know the, the piece, I didn't do my homework. But I, I do like the kind of jazzy drumming that's kind of mixed in with the classical playing. But yeah, that's basically all I have to say. I just love how heavy this song is. Yes. It, it shows you that Bartok is pretty much metal disguised as classical music he is <laughs> yeah and the, the fuzz bass at the beginning is just disgusting i love it yeah uh the that hammond organ sound is he does a really great job of treating the hammond organ almost like an electric guitar which i mean if you ever heard uh billy joel's work with attila you know how how badly that can go <laughs> But Keith Emerson does it really well. And I think it's really cool that they they picked a not particularly well-known piece of classical music to open up with. It, yep. it shows, like I hadn't even heard the Bartok original until fairly recently. And it shows you that these these guys are for real. They've really done their homework. They know what they're doing. And again, I mentioned it before, but just I just love the whole effect of Palmer just beating everything to death. It's like the, it's like the Mongol horde coming yeah. out of out of the wilderness and just like destroying everything in its, in its path until you're just done with that final dissonance. It's amazing. It's so violent. I love it. All right. Now, for those of you who are maybe a little surprised at how straightforward and normal prog rock has turned out to be, we are just easing you in. Let's move on to Take a Pebble. detail of Take a Pebble that has to be mentioned is that this song is 12 and a half minutes long and is multi-part and it cannot be discussed in a single setting. So we're splitting this one into six parts. So section one, first 30 seconds or so, it's the introduction. This is so majestic. Everson gets this great effect by strumming the strings of a grand piano with, with a guitar pick. And the mix of that and Lake's ascending bass and, and the ascending piano just just overwhelms me every time. I love this piece. I love this introduction so much. It is really great. And I thought that was an auto harp at the beginning. And I always thought, what a weird choice for a bunch of British dudes in 1970 to pick up. And then I read your notes and found that they're, they're strumming the grand piano. And I thought, OK, in a weird way, that makes more sense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I always thought it was an auto harp too. 
Just because it's really hard to play chords by strumming the inside of a grand piano. I would think so. Well, it's also hard to play uh, an organ after you stab it. So Keith Emerson was very, True. <laughs> was very inventive. <laughs> True. Dan, what did you think that was? Yeah, I, I actually kind of said, because I think I've heard a strum piano before, but I couldn't place where I've heard it before. I even Googled it this morning. I tried to see songs that have strum piano, but I couldn't find it. But it, it I kind of suspect that's what it might be. I don't know why. <laughs> Good catch. All right, are we ready for part two? I think we are. All right. Just take a pebble and cast it to the sea. Then watch the ripples that unfold into me. My face built so gently into your eyes, disturbing the waters. All right, so a couple things that jump out immediately. One, oh, Greg Lake is so good. I mean, yes, he's very he's very theatrical. He's he's very much the the senior equivalent of an actor who is acting, but there's a place for those, and he's so good at what he does. And the second thing that, that jumps out is that this is another case where um, an Emerson Lake and Palmer has an analog uh, from the Nice, and where the, the version from the Nice just cannot compare. So the the piece from the nice that uh, I end up comparing this to is a cover of a Tim Harden song uh, called Hang On To A Dream. And the thing about that song was that Emerson was great in it. But whenever the vocalist for the nice by the name of Lee Jackson would come in, it would just turn it to crap. Whereas here you have Emerson's piano is fully matched by the vocals and the overall effect is just heavenly. Yeah, it's true. I agree with you. And Greg Lake's voice here, you know, in general, but particularly here, sounds a lot like Rick Wright to me uh, in both tone and style. They're both very cold and cerebral, uh, which I don't mean in a bad way. I enjoy that a lot. And Lake, I would say, is a little more so than Wright. So this section sounds really pretentious and academic in that prog rock way that I really, really like. And the melody is strong enough to be able to pull that off. Uh, you're right. He sounds like a singer actor playing a role and he's doing it extremely well. And I just love the effect of that with that gorgeous ripply piano line, which almost seems impossible to do. I don't know how somebody's fingers move that fast, but it's it's a fantastic section. Yeah, and you get some little subtle touches of double tracking here and there, too, that kind of pop in. But the thing that really stands out for me is the piano playing in this, where Emerson kind of does this neat trick of making the piano actually sound like trickling water that kind of imitates the ripples from the pebble. And I kind of like how that actually, that gimmick seems to actually work. Mm-hmm. And now that you mention it, I mean, we'll, we'll get to that in a couple sections, but that idea of, of water holds up through the piece because you have the middle section where, you know, you're basically taken into, like, southern mississippi and like a swamp mm-hmm. and like the idea that there's this water theme that's just implicitly baked into the entire piece from start to finish is one that i think is a 
it's a nice overlooked touch, but it's it's absolutely there. It just kind of warms its way in, into your subconscious. Mm-hmm. Mike, what are your thoughts? Oh, I just think it's it's a beautiful song. I mean, melodically speaking, it's uh, as lovely as anything the Moody Blues ever did. Mm-hmm. Although the the difference is that uh, the Moody Blues were never as uh, ambiguous in mood as this song is. You either have like a, a heavy minor key Mike Pinder song or you know, a, a heavenly soaring Justin Hayward song or the, the bouncy Ray Thomas song. Greg Lake is kind of, you don't really know, uh, you don't really know how he feels here beyond uh, grandiose. But uh, he does that exceedingly well. This is, this is a, a terrific song for him to just kind of introduce himself with, to just kind of step into the spotlight. This, this is what I do in the band. He just kills it. Mm-hmm. All right, how about part three? So what really jumps out at me with this is obviously Everson is an excellent keyboardist, but he's, he's also a great writer of keyboard parts. And he, he would become very adept at, at playing passages like this live and putting them together. And he always knew basically how to creep right up to the edge of, of being self-indulgent without necessarily going over the edge. I mean, just listen to this, like there's just so much skill here. But it, 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 you don't become overwhelmed with the idea that he's, he's showing off too much, even though to an extent he is showing off. Mm-hmm. What stands out in this section to me is the drumming. It's really interesting. Um, very nice, light touch. You know, just enough to back up the piano and give it some extra texture. Not the George Harrison album. Um, but again, you know, some great restraint there that just keeps this from tipping over the edge into boring and self-indulgent. Yeah, one of the things I like about this album a lot in particular is just rather than being wall-to-wall Hammond organ, is you get a lot of these extended piano pieces. And I never, never realized how much I enjoy just his piano playing. It's kind of nice just to hear these long, really kind of pleasant pieces. Yeah, and it's this section in particular is so... I'm really struck by the subtlety of it. It's a 12-minute song with these long instrumental passages, but it, it you never get sick of it because it stays engaging the whole way through. It's... Uh, keeps moving it keeps moving mm-hmm. and it's memorable the whole way through it's full of little things that'll stick in your head and it really just carries you right along with the song another thing that's important here is it's 12 minutes but none of the individual parts are very long true like he has he has a lot of pieces of uh, sections that are very engaging and they go as long as they should 
but ultimately, like, you know, there's there's no there's not like a, a seven minute section here. There's a two minute section, and a three minute section, and a four minute section. And if someone's looking at this going, oh, it's 12 minutes, boy, I don't know. <laughs> like, just think of it as, again, as six tracks that are each somewhere between a minute and five minutes, and you'll feel better. And that are each very interesting in different ways. Yes. All right, let's move on to Take a Pebble Part 4. listening to this you probably noticed that you had to turn your your volume up way up high and that's not an accident they start very very quiet they're trying to evoke a mood and that mood is a swamp somewhere in the southern united states you have lake just playing a very quiet acoustic guitar and palmer's doing some percussion things that are designed to sound like water and then it turns into a hoedown now this kind of, of juxtaposition of different uh, styles, again, like, may seem forced if you're inclined to be cynical about it, but I love this aspect of Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. They're just desire, again, to just combine all sorts of things together. And, you know, you, again, you started with this very grandiose classical jazz combination, and then you turn to an acoustic hoedown. So the river has carried us right on down to the bayou, apparently. Um, I'm not, this isn't my favorite part of the song. I'm not crazy about just the little acoustic twangs at the beginning there with the little water drips. Although I do like the consistency of that water imagery. Um, I, I like the hoedown part a lot though. And it, not least because it is so out of place. It, it just, it pops up out of nowhere and it's, it, it's really cute. You know, <laughs> I find them just adorable doing that. And then after they finish square dancing, there's where they could have <laughs> used that auto harp. Um, <laughs> there's a really lovely acoustic guitar work afterward. I've always really liked that finger picking style. So Dan, you're the one of us who actually lives in the Southern United States. How successful is this for you? Uh, well, <laughs> I live in Birmingham, but, <laughs> uh, yeah, this is a definite weak spot for me for this track. I mean, the kind of noodly acoustic stuff doesn't really, it seems a bit ponderous to me. But I do like the hoedown. The hoedown's fun. It's mm -hmm. unexpected. You don't see it coming. But yeah, the kind of like little hammer on, hammer off guitar stuff is a little, it seems a, a tad aimless. But a, in an otherwise great track, this is not the best. Well, this, this always used to be my least favorite part of the song, but it had less to do with the actual music and more to do with the fact that I, I had a used vinyl copy. 
And when it got to this part of the song, it was so quiet that the <laughs> noise of the vinyl kind of drowned out the music and it annoyed me. It's so, like Moonchild. Yeah. <laughs> Getting it on CD later on, I grew to enjoy this part. It sounds, I always thought it sounded like he was playing in a cave somewhere. You could hear little yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, stalactites dripping. It's probably still my least favorite part of the song, but only because the rest of the song is so great. I think it's a nice little breather in the middle. Mm-hmm. All right, let's move into part five. We're on the home stretch of this song anyway. So what strikes me is this uh, about this one is that it it's very different from the last piano heavy break that we had in the song, and yet it sounds every bit as much a part, uh, a natural part of the piece as the previous one did. And Emerson would actually play long improvisations and concerts that sounded a lot like this, the, the bass and modal jazz, and with some elements of classical thrown in here and there, and he would do this as a as a way to challenge himself. I'm not sure he ever really topped this particular passage in all the pieces that he he recorded for live performance. This one's just gorgeous, and you know we're we're, we're playing a couple minutes of of a four minutes snippets, and I almost regret the fact that you know we can't really include the whole four four and a half minute snippet. Like this is just a really really great instrumental from start to finish. And I never get tired of this part. It just sounds so good. The piano here just sounds so alive. All the keyboards on this album just sound so alive. But this is just such a great sound. Yeah, I love this. I think it's a really skillful, virtuoso performance, but not to the point where you, you know, roll your eyes and (laughs) walk away because somebody's just showing off and noodling around on the piano. Oh, here we go. (laughs) 
It's I really like that steady repeated part on the left hand just over and over with the kind of plinky improvisation on the right hand. It's almost a little ragtimey. Yeah. Except that both parts, of course, are syncopated rather than just the right hand. Um, Emerson loves to bring ragtime elements. Oh, yeah. In pieces. So, yeah. So that's what you're saying is spot on. Mm hmm. And the, the drumming is very jazzy, too. I mean, it sounds like it fit right in with Vince Guaraldi's trio. Yeah, I kind of picked up on the Vince Guaraldi thing, too, on several parts of the album. Uh, yeah, this is another stretch. I really like this. Just really beautiful piano playing. I, I don't know much about piano playing, so I don't really know how to describe it. But uh, but yeah, this is, I think, one of the highlights of the album for me. Yeah, I really like how uh, he's he's playing the same little ostinato he was playing before, but the mood is totally different. Yeah. What, what he's mm-hmm. playing on top of it changes the whole thing. And uh, I never noticed the uh, the Vince Guaraldi similarity, but I certainly do now. And also, uh, just to, to sort of piggyback on your remark about the, the just the sound of the piano, I love hearing a well recorded grand piano on a rock album. Yep, it's really crisp. Yeah, and you can hear like if you listen to what's coming to mind right now is uh, David Bowie's Station to Station, which is an album I love, and I'm gonna host it at some point. But the piano sound on that album, when uh, when TVC One Five starts up, and it's the tiniest little piano sound, and I just think, why, why did you do this? <laughs> and this, the piano sound in this one is just gorgeous. You can, you hear the full range of what it sounds like. It's really great. Mm-hmm. So, how are they going to wrap all this up in part six? strikes me here is it just it just sounds so much more dramatic and more profound in this part than in the first iteration just all the developments of the last eight minutes is just you just feel like this song has just been through something yeah there's timpanis too mm-hmm. yeah. yeah yeah just the sound of the song has just gone through incredible change and hardship and all sorts of emotions it just sounds deep and profound and important 
even though probably on a certain level it probably means nothing. But you don't know <laughs> that while you're listening to it. <laughs> yeah, you're right. The daybreak is your midnight is my favorite line. It is beyond pretentious, and I absolutely <laughs> love it. <laughs> Ever's Lake and Palmer, everyone. Yep. Yeah, that verse in general, though, it's really lovely, and I really like the analogies in it. You know, in pockets creased and tattered hang the rags of your hopes. You know, I, I really hope you guys weren't turning on this album hoping to be uplifted. <laughs> but I really like, you know, it's the same melody and a similar theme as at the beginning of the song, but they've had so much more time to develop it. And every second of this 12 and a half minutes was necessary and important and has its place. Yeah, it's a really effective reprise, really is a good way to kind of just wrap it up. Yeah, I've, you know, I've been listening to this song for probably 20 years now, and I still have no idea what it means. But I don't care, <laughs> because as, as long as, as Greg Lake is singing it like that, by God, I know exactly what he means. It's, it's so effective. The line about the worn-out overcoat, I don't know what he's on about, but it's great. <laughs> and also, something that it took me way too long to figure out about music is that more instrumentation does not equal bigger. Yep. I mean, sometimes it does mm -hmm. if you do it well, but if you ha just have a trio recorded really well, that gives everybody more space to take up in the mix. Mm -hmm. And that means every instrument can sound as huge as it possibly can. Yeah, that's an interesting point when everything has room to breathe. Where I think the point of comparison is for this one is to brain cell surgery, because they went for the exact opposite approach there. Yeah. They, mm -hmm. it, it, instead of going stripped down and letting the instruments just make everything big, they said, no, we're going to make everything big. And, and you know, they, they put tons of echo on it and, and brought in every type of sound. And it succeeds sometimes, but it also gets in its own way some of the time, whereas there's nothing on this album that gets in its own way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right, so let's... Get out of our own way and move on to we're only on track three can you believe it it's called knife edge just a step cried the sad man take a look down at the madman theater kings on silver wings fly beyond reason from the flight of the seagull come the spread claws of the eagle. Only fear breaks the silence as we all kneel, pray for guidance. So this piece is based on the first movement of Sinfonietta, which was written uh, by the Czech composer Leon Janicek in 1926, near the end of his life.
so the instrumentation, the verses is primarily going to center around Lake's vocals and its bass, with Emerson primarily just relegated to the instrumental breaks. And eventually he will he will take over more of the song, but initially he's he's functioning more or less as texture. The lyrics here are really dark. Patient cues for the gallows, seeing the praise of the hallowed. Our machines feed the furnace. If they take us, they, they will burn us. Yeah, this is, I really like this one. If that midsection sounds like it should be something from Bach, that's because it is something from Bach. It is from his first French suite. with this is that one of my friends used to have uh, the ending can you still keep your balance as the closing shutdown sound for his computer which I thought was incredibly geeky and kind of awesome <laughs> yeah <laughs> now I did not know that that middle section was from Bach and now I feel a little stupid because that's the part of the song that I don't like <gasps> uh, <laughs> It just, it, it gets a little bit too noodly for my taste. And I find myself thinking, okay, Emerson, rein it in. <laughs> um, but that's only compared to the rest of the album where everything is comparatively restrained. I mean, it's it's really not over the top at all. It just, you know, I just don't like it. But that's a great bass line and the vocal take is fantastic. You know, the whole thing just feels dark and a little frightening and it, you know that with the time signature that's a little bit awkward to start with but they settle into it pretty quickly um so overall i like the song a lot yeah that bass line is just really menacing and cool sounding and i think the song kind of works as like a nice palate cleanser just to have this kind of rocker between the two big epics and i really like the way the end of the song is just the tape slowing down to a stop and that's the end of side one yeah it's kind of neat this is i have a prog rock mix that i 
I like to inflict on people who I think might enjoy that sort of thing. And this song here is uh, how uh, I represent Emerson, Lake, and Palmer on that one, mostly because I, I wanted to keep things under 10 minutes, and that's, that's hard to do with Emerson, <laughs> Lake, and Palmer. Like, my favorite songs of theirs are, you know, 20, 30 minutes long. Uh, <laughs> I absolutely had a, a two-CD prog mix that I gave to some people to help get them in, and this was the starter on on disc two. Hmm. I, that's, that's incredible. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is the, the best representation of Emerson, Lake, and Palmer that I, I think fits into five minutes. Yeah. And it's, I think it portrays them in the most flattering light possible. It's not super overblown. It's just really dark and menacing. It's got that mean junkyard dog Hammond organ. It just kicks ass. It's just awesome. Greg Lake sounds like Again, I don't know what he's talking about, but he sure sounds like he means it. And it makes me want to scream along with him, even though my own vocal range does not permit such things. Now, Rich unfortunately couldn't be with us tonight, but while we were preparing for the episode, he did some digging around on whosampled.com, as he likes to do, and found a song called Madman by Sean Price that sampled Knife Edge. Take a good look at a madman. I got mad plans. I got mad scams. I used to rap, but I didn't plan when That just breaks my brain. I like it. <laughs> That's really well done. That's hard to sample a song in a weird time signature like that. Mm-hmm. All right, are we ready for side two? Yep. Yeah. All right, let's <laughs> let's go pay a visit to the three fates. This is another multi-part track. You guys are gonna love it. Cue the part that sucks. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so this track in the next one called Tank is typically where the album starts to lose people. And there's a good reason for it, is that put together, these two tracks are about 15 minutes of instrumentals. Now, while I do consider these tracks, in aggregate, uh, a relative dip compared to the high standards of the first half of the album, I don't consider them a failed experiment, like I originally did. And I don't consider them self-indulgence gone wrong or anything like that. They just have some ups and some downs, some parts that are better than others. Now, The Three Fates is a three-part suite that was written by Emerson that's more or less about the three figures from Greek mythology of the same name. So the three fates are Clothos, uh, whose function was to unwind thread from a spool, which would be symbolic of an individual's birth. Lachesis, who would measure out the thread to some length, which would be symbolic of an individual's lifespan. And Atropos who would cut the thread, and this would be symbolic of an individual's death. Now, some people have, have gone through this track and tried to figure out how do these three parts exactly depict or correspond to the three individuals in the titles. I think that's somewhat of a waste of time. 
these are not literal depictions. These are abstract impressions of the essence of each of the three. And it's, it's sort of the same way that the various movements of Gustav Holst's The Planets are not literal presentations and depictions of the planets and the gods that they're associated with. They are abstract representations about the planets and the gods, and you're just supposed to take them in that sort of way. Now, Clothos, this first part, was played on a pipe organ in the Royal Festival Hall in London, and yes, it, it gets your attention right away. Um, that's not necessarily a good thing. It's by far my least favorite of the three parts of this track. Yeah, I am pretty sure this is Dracula's favorite song. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I, I picture a vampire sitting in a castle, you just banging away on a pipe organ. And I, you know, I can deal with the organ tone. I just wish it had more of a purpose than hollering, look what we did, we have an organ. Yeah, this ugly ass organ does nothing for me. I do not care for this part of the song. Mike, are you going to defend it or are you... <laughs> Gonna be right like the rest of us. Well, a little of both. Because I mean I think I think this is a cool track, but I think it's a good idea that they saved it until this late into the album because it's the song most likely to get a reaction of, oh geez. Yeah. <laughs> what did I get myself into? I mean, it's hard to make a, a pipe organ not sound pretentious. Arcade Fire did it. Arcade Fire are pretty pretentious. Yes, they are, but it, their pretension <laughs> works for me. I like that song, though. Yeah, it's a great song. It's the best one on that album. The king's taken back the throne The useless sing the song When they say they're cutting off the throne They tell them you're not home I do like, I, I like pipe organs, though. They're literally the heaviest instrument in the world. You can't get heavier than a pipe organ. So it's got that going for it. But this is also the track on the album that I'm most likely to not be in the mood for if it comes up on shuffle. <laughs> I've got to be primed for it. Yeah, it seems like that would be kind of a nasty surprise if you didn't see it coming. Yeah. <laughs> so the good news is that the rest of this track is quite good. Yeah, that's true. So the second of the three fates is, is that Lachesis or Lachesis? One of the two. I don't know. Fate number two. So this is another extended piano workout where Emerson seeks to mix Baroque and jazz influences. I really like this part. I like how grand and sweeping it feels. I like the fact that it's less. this part is less than three minutes long. Like if it were just a standalone track, I looked at this and like, oh, this is like 245. This is a great track and it's pretty short. I like it. Yeah, I, I like it. It's fine. Um, it, I don't like this long piano workout as much as the ones in Take a Pebble. 
It's just not as interesting to me. It's it has much less of a melody than Take a Pebble did. And that melody is really important to me. I can put up with a lot if it's attached to a decent melody. And it's just it's not here. So I don't dislike this track, but it's just not that interesting to me. Yeah, I agree. It's not as strong as the previous piano workouts, but I do still like it. It's it's pretty. Yeah, I, I would agree with both of you. It's not it doesn't carry you away like the piano sections and Take a Pebble do. But it also just really impresses me. Like, dang, this Emerson guy can compose. Yeah. All right. Thank you, Mr. Emerson. Let's go visit the third fate at Tropos. Now, in addition to Emerson, we now have Palmer. Uh, so the, the Clothos organ comes in just for a bit, and then fortunately it disappears. And then Emerson plays a, a vamp in 7-8 that gets covered in an improvisation in 4-4, four, four, and the two parts clash in a great way. And at first it sounds like chaos and just noise, but it ends up coming together in a way that kind of works. And again, I also like the over-the-top touch at the end of just having the big explosion. I mean, I guess that symbolizes death, which makes sense. It would be tied to the to the third fate here because that was her role. It's a piece that's probably more pretentious and, and tries to do more than it necessarily should, given the elements. But I like the way that it ends up on the whole. Uh, Dan, why don't you go before me on this one? Because it looks like you know what that whirring noise is. Oh, the vibra slap. Is the that what very you call liberal that? use of the vibra oh. slap that appears at the end of this song. I could picture it, but I didn't know what it was called. I always thought it was like one of those old-timey noisemakers from like New Year's Eve parties. Yeah. See, to me, it sounds like a vibra slap, like it's straight out of a cake song. <laughs> it might be. I have no idea. Somebody's spinning a pinwheel or something. I don't know. I really like, uh, is, it, is that a Latin rhythm, I guess, they're going yeah. into? I really don't know. I'm completely rhythm. ignorant, but... Yeah. But it's a nice kind of unexpected turn that's sort of similar to the hoedown that just appears in the middle of uh, Take a Pebble. Where it just sort of, it's a weird little left turn you don't expect. Yeah, I like that about it too. And But, you know, the organ shows its ugly face again. And <laughs> yeah, that's unfortunate. It's, I mean, the point of the pipe organ, it's not a subtle instrument and nobody expects it to be. But it kind of grates on my nerves a little bit. And like, I get what they were going for. I just don't enjoy it all that much. And as for the whole track, I like it, but it's not... To me, it's not anything really special, especially, you know, especially when you compare it to Take a Pebble, um, except for the explosion. I really like that. And I think it should be louder. All explosions should be as loud as possible. I agree. I like this part of the track. It sounds like three Keith Emerson's having a wild and crazy party. One's wearing a lampshade. <laughs> the three Keiths. The three Keiths. Yeah. <laughs> the only thing I, I don't really like about it is the, the lead piano over the top has this kind of headachey tone to it. I totally get what you mean. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think they EQ'd it just so it would cut through the mix, and it, it ends up just being kind of painful to listen to up loud. But I'm not going to throw the track away just because of that. I think it's pretty neat. Okay, are we finished with the fates? They've blown us up. We're all dead now. So let's move on to Tank. All right, Rich appears to have gotten mixed up and put in Tank, the theme song from the anime Cowboy Bebop. Let's try the right one now. is a drum solo. I generally despise drum solos, but I like this track. During show preparation, Mike uh, made a statement that I generally agree with, which is that Tank isn't so much a drum solo as it is a multi-part instrumental that just happens to have a drum solo super glued onto it. Yeah. Um, and if I think about it that way, I feel more warmly to it. Now, the thing about, it, about drum solos that, that tends to put me off is that they tend to follow the mold of something like Moby Dick, which I generally just don't like it's usually out just a big fat hard rock riff it's going to be played by guitar bass and drums and then the drummer is going to come in and it's just going to be his kit to a pulp and then a different guitar bass drums riff is going to come in and and over to the end most drum solos follow this exact same pattern and to a certain extent they're all interchangeable i know it's controversial i'm sure that a drummer somewhere is is very angry but it, it's true and they know it now with tank the general structure of it is the same as one of these typical drum solos, but how they go about it is totally different. And they, the way they go about it is to make it sound as goofy as possible. The opening and closing instrumental parts, they, they heavily feature bass and drums, but the, uh, the supplemental instruments are not guitar. It's clavinet and piano in the opening portion, and in the closing part, it's a clavinet and a moog. I just love the cheeky subversion of expectations that they they go about with this track and the way that they ultimately decide to say, like, yeah, we're doing a drum solo, but it's our drum solo. And another thing that's nice about it is that, comparatively speaking, the drum solo itself is pretty short. And it's much more like a jazz drum solo than a typical hard rock or heavy metal drum solo. And in general terms, I have yet to hear a song that was hurt by a clavinet. Hmm. <laughs> And so the fact that it wraps up with one is a good thing. So the first few times I listened to this album in preparation for this episode, I was listening in the car, so I didn't have the track list in front of me. So I just assume this is part of the previous track. I thought this is the fourth fate. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, the, the drum solo doesn't bother me. I think in the context, it's actually pretty fun. And you get the neat little phaser effect at the end. 
And I actually think I hear a few little kind of Zappa-esque things in there, which actually are probably predate what Zappa would have done later on. But that was kind of kind of stuck out to me. But I also feel like I'm hearing a bit of how many more times by Led Zeppelin in the bass near the end. Oh, yeah, I can Am hear I that. imagining that? No, you're totally right. good points but i just totally stuck on the idea of tank the the three fades bastard stepbrother keep it a closet well after that explosion it kind of makes sense tank bad because <laughs> you know if you're listening to this album straight through without a bunch of nerds yammering over it there's barely even a pause between the two tracks so i i totally get why <laughs> Oh, a Trobos blows up the world and then the tank rolls in. <laughs> it's an armadillo tank, too. Yes, Conceptual continuity. Yes. So after, after it settles into the song, I'm going to stop giggling at some point, I promise. Um, the drum solo is interesting just in the way it's recorded. It sounds... It's quieter than you would think a drum solo yeah. should be. I mean, it sounds like it's being recorded like like you're standing on the other end of a football field from a drummer who's just, you know, wailing away on the drum kit, but he's far away, so it doesn't blow your ears out. So that's kind of interesting in and of itself, but it's also, it. he seems to concentrate mostly on the snare drum, so it just doesn't have that real loud, heavy foundation that you expect a monster drum solo to have. So both of those things, I think, make it a lot more tolerable to me because I also usually don't like drum solos. You know, about the only one I genuinely enjoy is Ringo's on Abbey Road, which barely even qualifies. Mm. But then at the very end, you know, there's that... I'm not sure what that sound is. Is that the clavinet, John? Where it kind of whizzes back and forth between the two speakers? Well, there's the... the yeah. that's, a, that's a mook. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's a mook. Yeah, you're way better at distinguishing the keyboards than I am. And it's like that slightly boingy sound at the very end. I enjoy that a lot, too. The clavinet sounds cool. The Moog sounds like Prague. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Good distinction. Yep. That's why I'm here. Prague John, everybody. Yep. This was always uh, one of my favorite songs on the album, as a matter of fact. I just thought it was a really cool instrumental, and I never... I never minded the drum solo because you got to have some way of getting from the first section to the next one. And Carl Palmer hadn't really gotten his solo spot on the album, so might as well give him a drum solo. And I don't... I, his drum solos are always pretty entertaining to me. I mean, if he goes on for, for 10 minutes, that gets kind of old. But he, he plays more like a jazz guy than just, uh, look, I'm John Bonham, I'm playing the drums with my hands for 20 minutes. But I just think it's this is just a really cool track. I think... Uh, <laughs> With that anime theme, that Cowboy Bebop music uh, we heard earlier, it made me think, you know, this, this would make a cool theme song for something. 
It could be like from an old spy movie or something. All right. For those of you who have sat through all of this album with us, here's your reward. You all know this song. This is Lucky Man. horses and ladies by the score all dressed in satin and waiting by the door Ooh, what a lucky man he was Ooh, what a lucky man So this is very different. And it just occurred to me as we're sitting here that um, each of the three gets their own track on the second half. So Emerson gets his with the with the three fates. Palmer gets his with Tank. And now Lake gets to uh, record the first song that he ever wrote. So he wrote this when he was 12 after his mom bought him his first guitar. And this song inaugurates a tradition of Lake including very solid ballads on each of the band's albums that would become each of their respective albums' most famous songs, even though in every case they would be their respective albums' least representative songs. The band initially hated this song, and eventually he was able to persuade them that there might be something there, so they helped him refine it until the whole band decided it was okay to record this is another point of Emerson, Lake, and Palmer that I took me a long time to realize is a little distasteful. And I'm sorry, you guys, I'm just going to pl- complain very, very briefly. But that first line, he had white horses and ladies by the score, all dressed in satin and waiting by the door. That's that, that's not great. <laughs> <laughs> that's an excellent point. <laughs> just, you know, like defense, a he was stable 12. of ladies <laughs> and horses. Like, oh, man. Yeah. So... But that's the only thing that, you know, raises my eyebrow a little bit. It's a gorgeous song. Everybody likes Lucky Man, you know. But the thing is, this isn't one that I haven't heard played to death on classic rock radio, so I've never managed to get sick of it, which is really good. That would be a shame because it's a terrific song and nothing like what came before this. I mean, as Rich said at one point, it's like you didn't expect to sit through this prog rock album with, you know, dad rock right around the corner. And it's just... (laughs) It's a it's a great way to wrap it up. Yeah, I don't think I actually hear a whole lot in classic rock radio either, to be honest. Um, mm-hmm. And maybe it is part of why it hasn't completely just been killed for me. But uh, yeah, it, it still is great. Like I, I don't get sick of hearing it. I hadn't heard a note of Emerson, Lake, and Palmer on the radio or anywhere else until I started listening to them. So this song was entirely new to me when I got the album. And it's just it's just a really pretty song. Really nice harmonies. Now, the beautiful harmonies and, and the dad rock and all that is uh, a main part of, of Lucky Man, but it's not the only iconic part. Oh, no. The, the ending portion of this song has one of the most iconic Moog solos ever performed. Now, I do not say written because Emerson played this entirely by accident. He was just screwing around. And he had no idea that this was going to make it onto the album. He was actually, he was very surprised and actually a little upset that they decided to, to use this take. So what he did with this is that he was just basically goofing around with the glide control functionality of the Moog. 
right up to the ominous ascending three notes at the very end. And many years later, after uh, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer had disbanded and he wanted to, uh, to take on a solo career, and he wanted to start playing the solo on stage, but he didn't know it. So he had to get in touch with Keyboard Magazine because many years later, <laughs> many years previous, they had actually uh, transcribed the solo and they, and they had it. They had, they had the notes for it. So he actually had to get in touch with them, ask them for the transcription so he could learn the solo. That is amazing. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty great story. <laughs> Rock is awesome. Yeah. And just the fact that he came up with that, just noodling around, messing on the moog, is, you know, it kind of shows how good he really was, just to come up with something that ominous and distinctive to wrap up a fairy tale. Just It, it makes the song, really. I mean, it was really good up to that point, and then you get to those three terrifying moog notes, and suddenly it's a whole different song for the next 15 seconds. <laughs> Why'd you have to go and do that? All right, we've gotten through all of Emerson, Lake, and Palmer's self-titled debut album. I hope you all enjoyed it. Uh, John, what are your concluding thoughts? So, as you can probably get the sense of, this is my favorite Emerson, Lake, and Palmer album. This is the one that entertains me the most, but it's also the one that interests me the most. No, it does not define an entire genre like, say, in the Court of the Crimson King or, or Close to the Edge or, to a certain extent, Brain Saddle Surgery. But what it does do is it represents an interesting projection of traditional values, both in terms of, of classical as well as some elements of jazz. And it takes these and it projects them onto rock in a way that really only Emerson, Lake, and Palmer could pull off. And in a few years, even they wouldn't be able to pull off this sort of projection in the same sort of way. So this captures a very strong band at a very strong particular point in time. And I would highly recommend it to anybody, even if somebody thinks that they don't like progressive rock. This is an album that is worth hearing and worth giving a few listens because it may ultimately end up growing on you every bit as much as it ended up growing on me. Absolutely. I'd say this is a good prog album for someone who thinks they don't like prog 
or for someone who's interested in it but doesn't know it well yet. Like if somebody I knew wanted to give prog rock a try, I would never give them, you know, The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, as excellent as that is. Um, it's just too, you have to really dig into that one. But this, you know, it not uniquely, but semi-unusually for prog rock, it has some breathing room. You know, they they got the size of the sound by giving everything enough space rather than packing it full of instruments. And also at this point, they had not forgotten that melodies exist and are important. So I'd say this is a really good option for sort of easing somebody into the genre, especially with, you know, Lucky Man mm -hmm. at the end. Everybody likes that one. I, I've heard that there are people who don't like Lucky Man, but I'm not sure. I believe they actually exist. They don't exist. Yeah. No. It's a myth. Yeah, I hadn't really listened to this album closely until I was preparing for this episode. Um, but yeah, I think I have to agree with John that uh, this is probably, you know, it's not the ELP-iest of ELP albums, but it, again, like it's, it's probably the least dated and the least over the top. So it actually works as just a an album that's not directed straight for hardcore prog heads. So it's probably, although it's not the most popular one, it's the one I would recommend above any of the other ones, I would think. Secretly, in general, the prog albums that do not try to direct themselves at hardcore prog heads tend to be among the best. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. This is not my absolute favorite Emerson, Lake, and Palmer album, but gosh, it's likable. And if you listen to it, if you go in not thinking of it as progressive rock, if you go in expecting just something interesting and different and eccentric and kind of weird, but not too weird, not off-puttingly weird, just with its own personality, there's a lot to enjoy, and you, you may be surprised. So if the folks at home like what they've heard so far and they want to dig into more Emerson, Lake, and Palmer or the stuff that went into this album, where should they go, John? So I have two sets of recommendations here. Uh, first is for Emerson, Lake, and Palmer themselves. So I, after this album, I would recommend uh, going on to Tarkus. I would also recommend picking up pictures at an exhibition. Now, this is a controversial pick. A lot of people notoriously hate this album. I think it's amazingly grotesque and a lot of fun. Um, and I would also recommend Brain Salad Surgery. Now, Brain Salad Surgery is an album where the low points are much, much lower than the lowest points on this album, but the high points on it are very high. And again, even though it's a, an album that succeeds for many different reasons than this album succeeds, it's still one that has a lot of tremendous material on it. Now, the other uh, set of recommendations I want to offer uh, relates to Bella Bartok. So I, I would recommend uh, two main routes in regards to Bartok. The first uh, is there's a, a pretty famous recording conducted by a, a man named Fritz Reiner with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra back in the 40s uh, that contains concerto for orchestra, music for strings, percussion, and celesta, and Bartok's Hungarian dances. So that's one thing that I would recommend. The other is just a collection of Bartok's complete solo piano music. Now, this has been recorded by many different artists, and typically it takes up about five CDs, and if you're looking for it new, it'll run you about $30, and if you look for it used, you can probably find it less. Uh, my particular set is, was recorded by a man named Jorgi Sandor, who studied under Bartok in the 30s and lived uh, for a few decades after that, but there are lots of complete sets from him, and that's where you can find Allegro Barbaro along with, another, uh, along with many other great works. Major cosign, first of all, on that Fritz Reiner Bartok album 
It's one of those uh, living stereo albums they put out in the 50s, and they made it with like three microphones, and it sounds absolutely massive like the orchestra's right in your living room. It's really, really good. I don't really know his solo piano music very well, so I can't speak for that, but John's probably right. As far as Emerson, Lake, and Palmer albums go, if you've gotten through this album and you're willing to jump in the deep end, you got to get brain salad surgery. It's so cool. It's completely over the top and really kind of ridiculous sometimes, but it's so enjoyable. It's got so many little cool moments all strung together. When I heard it as a teenager, I wasn't thinking about the pretentiousness. I was just bouncing around the room. Really, I their first five or so albums, I think, are all worth hearing. I used to not like Pictures at an Exhibition at all, but I actually have the copy I just bought right in front of me that just came in the mail. I just uh, came around to it after about 20 years. I, I didn't like it at all when I first heard it, but it's now I just love the, the wildness and audacity of it. And I... It's, Dad! Uh, those of you who listen to our moody blues episode will recognize that yeah and if you like the the moogpocalypse at the end of lucky man there's uh that's a neat little uh teaser of things to come because uh the next four or so emerson lake and palmer albums are chock full of howling moogs uh, so if that sounds like a good time to you, there's a lot more where that came from. I will go ahead and third the recommendation for brain salad surgery with the caveat that that's the only other ELP album I know well. I do hear every now and again uh, from the beginning on the radio from Trilogy. I have no idea what the rest of that album is like, but I really enjoy that song. And I'm happy when it comes on. From the beginning 
Trilogy is an album that tries too hard to sound like an Emerson, Lake and Palmer album, but from the beginning, oh, yeah? it's very good. I like that album a lot. It's got the endless enigma on it. I love that one. My favorite from that album is actually a Baden's Bolero. And Hoedown is a lot of fun, even though it's oh, yeah. completely ridiculous and it'll be better live. wraps up Emerson, Lake, and Palmer's wonderful debut album, but we still have more to say about it. Rich couldn't be with us while we recorded the episode, but he's here now to explain how ELP influenced video game soundtracks, believe it or not. Take it away, Rich. Thanks, Amanda. So, Phil and I weren't participants this week. As the two of us are Discord and Rhyme's official video game ambassadors, our absence is a problem in an episode about progressive rock. So I'm here to fill that gap. As John alluded to earlier, prog rock has had a documented influence on the composers of video game soundtracks, particularly Japanese role-playing games. To me, this is a perfect marriage of two artistic worlds, as prog rock is to music as the Japanese RPG genre is to video games. Bloated, self-indulgent, overly reliant on technical complexity, superficial mysticism, and words, words, words. And, when it works, completely f***ing awesome. On that note, I'm going to let the credits roll to the track Dancing Mad from the game Final Fantasy VI, composed by Nobuo Uematsu, who, as you can probably already hear, cites Emerson, Lake, and Palmer as a key influence. Back to you, Amanda, and thanks for letting me nerd up the episode. Thanks for listening, everybody. You can buy or stream Emerson, Lake, and Palmer and other albums by the band at usual sites such as Spotify, iTunes, YouTube, and Amazon, but not Sam Goody, they're all out of stock. Check out our website at discordpod.com for complete show notes and a preview of upcoming albums. You can follow us on Twitter at discordpod for news and updates. Follow Rich at Zonetrope, Amanda at Magnetic Inc. 67, Dan at Dan S. Watkins, John at Tarkus1980, as he told us earlier. And Mike is not on Twitter. He's out driving the armadillo tank. Very special thanks to Mike for his wonderful production and editing duties. Now join us next time, where for the first time, we are going to have a guest on Discord and Rhyme. Journalist Dave Weigel is going to join us to talk about Todd Rundgren's album, A Wizard, A True Star. So tune in then, and in the meantime, be ever wonderful.
Oh, my God.